The next day, that is the day after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud would be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by stealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Maybe see it. Well, before I even get started, I just want to say we had an Easter egg hunt in this place, and I went to go grab the clipboard, and I got a hidden egg. So you just never know what you're going to find. Um, don't go looking for more now, uh, but uh, if you find an egg, it's yours. Congratulations. Welcome to church. Now, um, my name is Gabe. It's, I'm, I'm the campus pastor here at Christ Communities Downtown Campus, and I want to say that I love Easter, Okay. It's probably one of my favorite Sundays all year round, not just because of what's at the center of Easter, but also because of what surrounds Easter. Like, who doesn't love Easter lunch, right? I mean, as a family growing up, um, one of our traditions, and my wife Allie has continued that forward, Easter we have a pot roast, right? You, there's nothing like coming back after church, opening up that door, and you get that smell, right? That smell of meat that's been permeating and juices and marinating and it's soaked into the walls. Mm, mm, mm. Like I just love pot roast. Some of you are looking at me like I'm crazy. Don't act like you don't love you some pot roast. Now, when you finally sit down and you eat some pot roast, you can't stop yourself, can you? You just want to eat and eat and eat until you have to like unbutton your shirt, unbutton your pants, take off your shirt. I don't know what you do when you get full. But for me, I go to the couch and the whole family just takes this huge nap, a, a, a sleep that's unto death. It's just so heavy after all that food you've been eating. And then when you wake up, what's one of the first things that pops into your mind? How, how can I get me some more of that pot roast, right? 
don't look at me like that. This is what you think. I know I'm not alone on this. And here's the deal. Here's the deal. As I was thinking about this morning, there's something about the best food that you eat. The best moments in life, those moments of great joy and happiness. There's something about those moments of beauty and delight. For example, it was a couple weeks ago, uh, I got to go with my wife and kids and join some of my extended family to be on the beach in St. Augustine, Florida. Mm. We couldn't wait for it. It was so exciting. We got there and every morning, afternoon, evening, it looked something like this. And like this. And like this. And listen, this is my iPhone, hashtag no filter, right? This was breathless. It was beautiful. But something happened. The sun would set. And the scene was gone. And now all I'm left with are memories and you know, just these shades of pictures that capture but maybe one-tenth of what I experienced on the beach that time. And the reality is that if you've ever watched the sunset, if you've ever been and experienced a symphony that, that raptures you up and then they finally come to an end, if you've ever had a meal that bite after bite felt like it was taking you to that next step, but I don't have an issue with food, just to be clear here. But, you know, that next step of delight each Time, then you know in those moments, once it's passed, we're always left longing for more. We're always left longing for more. One more bite, one more embrace of a loved one, one more conversation, more. And it seems like in this life, every bit of beauty, every moment of happiness, every moment of deep joy, every moment of delight is cut short. The song comes to a close. We have to say goodbye to ones that we've loved for so long. The plate is empty or our stomachs are full and we're always left wanting and longing for more. Robert Frost, the famous poet, says it best in his poem titled, Nothing Gold Can Stay. He says, nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold, her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief, so dawn goes down to day. Nothing gold can stay. Robert Frost does what every great poet has done throughout history. They give us a window into reality. If we'll take just a moment to slow down and see the way that the world actually is. And what do we do when we see the world in its liminality and we come to grips with this longing that's deep within us. What do we do with this? How, how do we respond to our longing? Well, really, there are only two options, two ways to live in response. The first is to just consider and conclude that life is absurd, that this is all there is, that there's nothing more, nothing less, and so choose to live beautifully and courageously, even though in the back of your mind you think that beauty and courage will amount to nothing, will end in nothing, and all that's left is the great abyss of nothingness waiting for you. Or you can conclude that there's more here. There's more here than meets the eye. You can conclude that there's something happened in the world that actually makes sense of everything in our lives, that actually makes sense of this longing for more, that our longing isn't just a chasing after the wind. 
And it's no secret that at the center and the very foundation of every Christian belief, every Christian practice, every Christian longing is just such an event. Now, believe it or not, we're going to find two women this morning that we heard read about in our text that are a lot more like you and me than we care to admit. Although they're separated by 2,000 years of history, culture, and language, they share something that is universal for humanity. They're longing for more. And they're seeking to make sense of this longing. You see, these two women, they'd given their lives to Jesus. They'd given their lives to helping Jesus in his ministry, following him around. They'd heard Jesus teach. They'd seen Jesus heal people. Only, it seemed like days, only moments before, they'd seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead out of the tomb. And now they're there as they stand next to their dead Lord and Savior, their rabbi. And they're wondering, there's got to be more than this. Sure, he said he was going to die. He said this plenty of times, but we never thought it would be like this. Not like a criminal, not here, not now. There's got to be more. That was Friday. Today, we pick up the story on Saturday. And if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 62. If you are using one of our community Bibles, it's found on page number 830. Five. Once you get there, we find the religious leaders are afraid. They're actually afraid of what could happen, that there's more to come because they remember after Jesus has died, they remember that Jesus had said that he was going to rise again, but they have a plan. And so they go to Pilate. Remember him? He's the fifth prefect of the Roman province of Judea from AD 26 to 36. This is a story anchored in history. This is not some make-believe legend. Go look up Pontius Pilate. And they say to him, hey, we remember when Jesus was alive that he said he was going to rise again. So can we put some guards near the tomb and ensure that nothing happens? Pilate, we think that this guy's students are going to come and actually try to steal his body. And then they're going to tell everybody that Jesus rose again. And if that happens, who knows what that could mean for Jerusalem? Who knows what that could mean for us in our area of leadership? Who knows what that could mean for you, Pilate? What do you say? And Pilate gets it. And so he gives them some soldiers to guard the front of the tomb. And he goes one step further and they actually seal the stone so that they know if anybody's actually tampered with the entrance to the tomb or not. Well, now we move to Sunday morning. And cue Mary Magdalene, which, just so we're all clear, is not Jesus' mother. And another Mary, who's also not Jesus' mom. And these two women, they'd helped out Jesus during his work while he was alive, and they make their way to Jesus' tomb. And I want to pause here for just a moment because you need to understand, if, if somebody is trying to make this whole story up about a guy being resurrected from the dead, this isn't how you'd begin. If you're looking for markers of genuine history, if you're seeking to do a good assessment of the evidence before you, rather than looking for fiction or an exaggeration, you look for things that the original audience would have really struggled with to find as a marker for authenticity. Like here in the first century, when this is written, if you were making this up, you would have not had women as the primary eyewitnesses. Sure, we live in the day and age now where, where we, sh we fight for women's rights, where equal pay for equal work is something that we should value. And in our culture, we pursue that. But in the first century... A woman's eyewitness account was seen as unreliable. Women were seen as less than man. 
not equal to men. And so if your motive is to make up a story to dupe the masses, this is a really stupid way to do it. If you're trying to make up a story that will be really convincing and you can kind of get people to join a movement where you can have power and be a leader, this would be really, really foolish to construct it this way. But if it's true, well. So Matthew says these two women, they arrive at the tomb and suddenly there's an earthquake. An angel descends and rolls the stone at the entrance to the tomb, and he sits there, and these soldiers, they faint, and the women are terrified, which, if you think Blair Witch is terrifying, okay, I don't know if you're ever into that, but um, imagine some guy who looks like lightning, like this is the descriptors that Matthew is trying to present before us, a guy who looks like lightning. He's so brilliant and his clothes are a brilliant white and you have one job as a soldier and your life depends upon it. Don't let anybody get into this tomb. And this guy, this thing shows up. Of course you're going to be on the ground. I mean, this isn't, this isn't the touched by an angel kind of angel, <laughs> right? This is, we got all these concepts. This dude is terrifying. And don't you love that the trained soldiers are the ones that are on the ground and the women are standing there? Um, Although they're afraid, I mean, can you imagine that moment? Just thinking like, Mary, are you seeing what I'm seeing, Mary? Yeah, Mary. Man, Mary, I wish we didn't have the same name so it didn't sound like we're talking to ourselves. Like, those moments, you, gotta, you just got to picture just the audacity of what's going on. And then the angel speaks to the woman, beginning in verse 5, look with me. Don't be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And so they go into the tomb, and the angel was right. There's nothing there. Jesus is gone. He's got to be alive. And they begin to get excited. Of course, they're afraid, but they're, they're overcome with joy. And so they go to tell others. And before long, they run into the risen Jesus. I mean, they'd seen the empty tomb with their own eyes. They'd heard what the angel had to say. But now it's him. It's really him. It's Jesus, and he's alive. And overwhelmed by everything, they just fall on their face, and they grab a hold of Jesus' feet, and they begin to worship him. He's alive. They'd seen him crucified on the cross. They'd seen him breathe his last. They'd seen him wrapped and placed in the tomb. But here he is. And I want to point out two things. First, Matthew wants us to know that Jesus' resurrection, it didn't mean that Jesus was just raised in our hearts or somehow Jesus was like something you'd find on ghost hunters, just kind of meandering his way around. No, resurrection meant bodies. And sure, okay, they didn't have the scientific method in the first century. They hadn't split the atom at that point. But even people in the first century knew that dead people stayed dead. Honestly, they were more experts on it, I think, than we are. So many of us have distanced ourselves with death so much, we don't even know where our meat comes from that goes into our pot roast. I won't go back to that again, I promise. Some of you, you know, there's the reality that they've seen death. They walk, they're holding the hands of their loved ones. They're involved in the burial. This is a much more intimate culture with death. They know what death is. But secondly, these two women, they worshipped Jesus. 
And I don't want you to miss how groundbreaking this is because a whole new perspective on the world emerges that has no previous precedent and is quickly adopted by a people who are predisposed to disbelieve it. You see, these women and the first followers of Jesus were Jewish. And the Jews did not worship human beings. Their mantra was the Shema in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Which is another way of saying he ain't human. And we worship one God. And suddenly at this moment, everything changes. When they worship this one, it changes even the day that they worship. They go from worshiping on Saturday to worshiping on Sunday to commemorate his resurrection. It changes who's in and who's out now that the Gentiles are involved in the people and the family of God. It changes what they can eat and what they can't eat. Hello, bacon, right? I don't have a food problem. Now, after what feels like just a moment, um, Jesus then tells these women to go and to go and tell my brothers, which isn't just the 11 apostles, okay? Every time, if you look throughout Matthew's account, when he uses the word brothers, it actually incorporates all who are following him. And that's why there's so much weight to this account. There's just too many eyewitness accounts. Even when the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that the risen Lord showed up to some 500 people at one time. You don't have this kind of mass hallucinations. Thoughtful psychologists will discard. There's too much in alignment here in terms of the similarity and the time for this to be just a mass hallucination. Well, while these women are going... And telling people what they saw, another story is being told about the empty tomb. You see, no one denies that there's an empty tomb. The religious leaders admit that there's an empty tomb. Historians across the ages have come to grips with an empty tomb. The women declare that there's an empty tomb. The question is, what are you going to do with the empty tomb? Now, the religious leaders, they had their own take. They begin to spread the lie that the disciples did indeed come and steal the body. We heard that read for us. You see, fake news isn't new. It's been around since as long as human beings have been around. And I want you to think about what would happen, what the religious leaders would lose if people knew Jesus had risen. How would people view the temple? How would people view their influence? People would start maybe asking questions about the crucifixion. They begin to pry, wondering how this was rushed, the injustice actually of the practice, how many of the laws of the Old Testament were broken in order to crucify Jesus in such a timeline. There was a lot at stake for the religious leaders for people to actually believe that Jesus rose again. You see, the trouble is when you come to this account that you not only have an empty tomb, but you have eyewitnesses. When you enter the science of history, these are firm foundation. This is great evidence for solidified faith. This isn't blind faith, but faith based upon good evidence of eyewitness accounts in an empty tomb. And while the soldiers there are guarding the tomb, you also, when you come into a court of law and you begin to assess evidence, you also have to come to motive, yes? The soldiers who were guarding the tomb, they had a motive to lie and cover up the resurrection for fear that they would lose their lives. But history shows us that the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection, what did they do? They gave their lives for the testimony of the resurrection rather than relenting of what they said they saw. 
The soldiers have every motive for self-preservation to lie. And actually the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection have every motive to relent of their confession for self-preservation. But they choose to hold firm to what they said they saw and so died for the proclamation of the gospel. This is not a blind faith, but a faith based on firm foundation and evidence. You don't have to be a fool to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. So what did they see? They saw what everyone said was impossible. Honestly, what they thought was impossible. They saw that more that every single one of us longs for. They saw Jesus alive. And it's here that the ache of our heart that ache that we feel when we realize that nothing gold can stay is met with something better. It's here that we see what every sunset, what every deep belly laugh, what every warm embrace is actually pointing to. And it's this, that the resurrection meets us with more. That more that we long for. And maybe you're asking how. How can one event offer all that? Well, let's walk through that together. And what I want to first point out is that we see in the resurrection that the resurrection validates there is indeed more. This isn't all there is. And the resurrection validates that there is indeed more. I don't, I don't think I'm alone in this, but if you think over your life, I'm sure there have been moments that have haunted you. You can't put your finger on it. Maybe most days and even most moments of most days, you feel fine. But there are moments, even in the greatest of moments, your heart aches for something more. Where does that come from? Is that really just an evolutionary malfunction for thousands of years? Or is there something pointing us to the reality of the world? The resurrection is the missing piece to the puzzle. How many of you like putting puzzles together around Christmas holidays? Yeah, we got some very avid puzzle putter, putter together. So yeah, that's weird. Anyway, we'll cut that from the podcast. I always hear people say that. Whatever. So anyway, so um, when you're putting a puzzle together, it, you can find a lot of delight in putting the pieces together. But there's nothing more frustrating after you've spent hours, maybe days, putting a puzzle together and there's one piece missing. What happens when you realize... First, you almost swear. Then you go looking at every point in your life and you think, okay, where has this box been? Has it, is it under the couch? And you begin to scour. You begin to think back over those moments in your life where that puzzle piece might be. You look everywhere. The one unique thing with the resurre resurrection is that when you finally do place it in its rightful position, it not only completes the puzzle, but it allows you to see the whole puzzle in fresh and new ways. You finally begin to see not only that there's more beyond this life, but even the more that's within the life that we live now. That is what the resurrection validates. That's what the resurrection offers. You see, if the resurrection actually happened, if Jesus not only said he was the son of God, said he was going to die, but also said that he was going to rise again. And if you look across Matthew's account, Matthew records Jesus saying at least four times that he's going to die and rise again. This wasn't a surprise to Jesus. It was not meant to be a surprise to the disciples. And did rise from the dead, and people saw him risen from the dead, and then died for the proclamation rather than choosing to relent from the proclamation that they saw him alive. 
then it means Jesus is who he said he was. And if Jesus is who he said he was, then what he said about the world, its beauty, its brokenness, your sin, my sin, his death for our sin, and that there's more after the grave, so much more if we just embrace him as Lord and Savior, all of that is true. Listen, if somebody says they're going to die and they're going to rise again and then they do it, I'm going to give him a little more weight than anybody else on defining what the world is all about. This life isn't all there is. And the resurrection validates there is indeed more. But it's not just that there's more. Just knowing that there's more, but being indecisive or unclear on what that more is can feel damning in and of itself. And so we come to see that, yes, the resurrection validates there is indeed more, but the resurrection makes happiness possible again today. There was a recent article in the Wall Street Journal that reported there's been an uptick in deaths of despair among the white working class. These are deaths from drugs, alcohol-related liver diseases, and suicide. Um, Anne Case and Nobel Prize-winning economist Angus Deaton examined more than 15 data sets including government health statistics, death certificates, and various economic indicators, and found that all across the country, both in rural and in urban areas, there's been an increased mortality rate linked with accumulating despair. Despair is the idea that there is no getting better. This is all there is. And if your world is a really dark place, that leaves you in despair. And happiness can feel absolutely elusive, can it? How many of us have moments in our lives that we wish we could go back to? Moments with loved ones that we can no longer have conversations with because of either arguments or death. Moments that we could wish we could go back to where even if just for a brief moment, everything felt right in the world and now it's gone. That can fill you with despair. But what we learn from these two women who were surprised by Jesus is that we can once again, when we come to see through the lens of the resurrection, we can be surprised by joy and happiness again today. So how did these two women run from the empty tomb? They ran with fear and decency. No. They ran with fear and being kind of joy. No, they ran with fear and great joy. I mean, this is overflowing joy. Fear, yes, because this isn't some naive optimism or a belief in a fairy tale world. There's still fear of walking in the midst of a broken world and a crucified Savior. But joy, joy that can overcome the greatest of fears. They saw what they did to Jesus. They watched him pierced. They watched him die. But when they felt his feet and they worshipped him, and even before them, when they saw the empty tomb, great joy overwhelmed them. You see, in the resurrection, fear, sin, shame, loss, hurt, none of those have to have the final word over your life. And this isn't some sort of fleeting happiness that's made available Yes, there's pain in this life. Yes, there's hardship. Yes, there are moments that we do grieve and we weep with those who weep. And although there will be valleys in this life, at the very depths of that valley, there is a river that runs with hope. 
And that current is strong and it tastes sweet, such that no matter how deep the valley, we can still have hope and encouragement that that valley will not define us forever. That hope and happiness are possible even in the depths of despair. And the resurrection says, come and see. But this isn't some momentary happiness made available to us. Here today, gone tomorrow. One of the greatest joys of the resurrection of Jesus and the more that we all long for is that yes, the resurrection makes happiness possible again today, but the resurrection promises that one day happiness will be forever. Even the worst and most egregious of pains will seem like but a distant memory when Christ returns and we too experience the resurrection of our bodies because of Christ. You see, the resurrection, it meets us with more. That more that not even death can take away. More than nice sentiments and really fuzzy feelings that can go by the very moment of the moment of the day. But life and life eternal is for all who grab a hold of Jesus' feet and worship Him exclusively as Lord and Savior. Death is our greatest enemy, isn't it? Always cutting short moments of beauty, joy, happiness, and love. But Jesus has won our salvation in his death and resurrection. He has defeated our greatest foe and he promises a paradise with him, which is crucial. It's a paradise centered in him, not exclusive of him, but he is at the center. And when we embrace him as king, we get to know the way the world was rightly ordered when he returns and makes his kingdom fully realized. This is for all who embrace the cross, all who embrace the resurrection of our crucified and resurrected king. So learn from these two women, these brilliant and courageous women who had enough courage to come and see. If you're longing for more, come and see the empty tomb. Listen to the witnesses who have touched and seen the resurrected Lord. Come and plumb the depths of His Word. Hear the invitation that is still available to you today. Come Ask your questions. Come with your doubts. Do not be ashamed of your questions. Do not be ashamed of your doubts. But join us as we continue to come and see. Join us as we explore the truth and we honestly pursue it wherever it might lead. Because we genuinely believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And if we pursue the truth, Jesus will always reveal himself. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not at that come and see stage, but you've embraced the resurrection of Jesus and we hear the call even now to go and tell. To go and tell the more that you have experienced in the gospel. To go and tell your friends, your family, your co-workers, the more that we've all been longing for revealed in the resurrection of Jesus. Don't hold back that more that God has done in and for you from those who are longing just the same. Don't be afraid to want more and to share more. It's found here. It's costly, and it's beautiful, and its lasting beauty is worth every bit of your life. Come and see. There's more here. Let's pray. Our God, we are thankful that we serve a resurrected Lord.
that you sent Jesus to live the life we couldn't live in perfect submission to you. To die the death we deserve to die and take our place and our penalty upon the cross and then rose again on the third day as a validation that he truly is the son of God, that his death really is sufficient for our sin and that we too can have a hope for resurrection and embracing him as king. God, this morning, may your Holy Spirit do the work you've promised he will do in convicting of sin and spotlighting Jesus in both his life, death, and resurrection. God, as we enter this week, may the resurrection and the more that it offers continue to effuse our work and our relationships in every sphere of life, all for your glory and your goodness. Give us courage to come and see afresh. And give us strength and humility to go and tell unashamed. We love you, Jesus. It is in your name we pray. Amen.